You're blowing all the stereotypes of young people today out of the water. I'm serious. It's, it's incredible. I, I am so impressed. I haven't been discouraged once looking out and seeing people mocking or goofing off or checking out. You have been an incredibly encouraging group to speak to. And I know most of you don't have a clue who I am, but I hope you know that I, along with everybody leading things here at Hume, desperately want you to know life and freedom in Jesus. I hope even if my personality rubs you the wrong way or I say things you don't like, I hope that you know I love you like a father. I am a father. You know, I remember my daughter, she was 11, and we were going at it about something, and she said, Daddy! She's always been able to speak her mind. She said, Daddy, you have absolutely no idea what it's like to be an 11-year-old girl. <laughs> and I said, Caroline, you couldn't be more right about that. <laughs> However, my dear, I said, you have absolutely no idea what it's like to be the father of an 11-year-old girl. <laughs> so let's just figure this out together. And that's what I'm doing. I hope you know I love you. I hope you know that as I preach and even maybe sound angry about lies you're believing, I am angry about lies you're believing. Not because I'm angry with you, but because I'm angry with the father of lies who tells them all the time and a culture that is lying to you and manipulating you all the time. I want you to hear that I love you, and I'm for you, and I want... It's like if, if my kid comes up to me and says, Daddy, I think I'm worthless. I'm not going to say, hmm, I, I understand why you might think that. <laughs> you know what I'm going to say? Exactly what I have said when my kids have said all kinds of versions of that to me throughout their lives. I say, you know what, honey? That's a lie that you're believing. And you know where it comes from? The pit of hell. So let's send it right back, huh? And, and I, I hope you can hear, I hope you can hear a father's voice who loves you, who's trying to help you see that you've been lied to. And more than a few of you are buying into these lies. And the heart of a father hates that you're buying into lies. I buy into them too. I, I'm still fighting the battle right along with you, just like me and my 11-year-old daughter. I'm doing this all the time. I'm always trying to speak the truth in love. I'm not just trying to affirm my kids and make them feel good. Listen to what Thomas Sowell said. This amazing scholar and brilliant man. Oh, uh, before I get to that, uh, no, we'll start with my family. I, I, I rearranged the order. Kayla, you got that going up there? Yeah, so listen to what Thomas Sowell said. Actually, let's, let's go to this Thomas Sowell quote. He said, when you want to help people, you tell them the truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. That is so true. Because we're people pleasers. And we're, when we're people pleasers, we're in it for what we get out of it. I hope you can hear this. I am, I am seeking to speak the truth and love all the time to my kids. I want you to hear a little text exchange I had with my son, Sam. Kayla, would you go back to that family picture? So my son, Sam, well, I have my left arm. I just adore my children, every one of them. They're so different and so unique. But, but Sam, I just adore this boy. 
he's so funny and so honest and so tender-hearted and so 16-year-old boy. And he texts me all the time. And today he texts me and he says this, Dad, there are like 18 bikes outside the gym today. Lots of people are riding bikes. Must be the gas prices. And I said, yeah, gases, and I put all these dollar signs, and he said, facts. <laughs> and then a few minutes later, he goes, Dad, I did a 120-pound shoulder press sitting. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and I say, okay, yeah, I love it. I love it, right? But here's what I, I want to speak the truth in love, right? I say, well done, strong boy. Be careful, though. That's one of those lifts people get hurt doing a lot. Strict form, total control, never doing more weight than is safe to prevent injury. Health and hoop first, Mr. Bodybuilder. That's what I said to him. And he said, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> yes, agreed. I already finished my basketball workout. And then he says, but dude, I felt huge this morning for some reason. And he said, like mom noticed too. <laughs> and I say, God has blessed you, my man. Don't neglect cardio, foot speed, and skills work. Big don't really matter much in hooping in real life. The best thing is that you have a big heart. Yes. <laughs> and then he says, out of the blue, a couple hours later, Dad. Shopping for food is literally my third most hated thing to do in the world. My wife's coming up here in a few days. She's shopping at Costco. And, she would, and, I, and I said, oh, I understand, but be thankful we have money to buy food and incredibly numerous options and high-quality food to buy. Try to see it as an amazing privilege. I love you, my boy, and I'm really glad you're helping your mama. What's the number one and two things you hate? Weren't you wondering when he said that? It's the third thing he hated most? And he said, number one is probably when someone younger than me asked me to do something for them when they should just do it themselves. <laughs> number two, he says, he, well, I'll read the, he says, uh, this is how he put it. Number one, probably, when someone who isn't over the age of like 20 asked me to do something because like, gee, you're literally almost my age, do it yourself or get someone younger. And second is probably working in the blazing sun. And then he says, you know how I said, I'm glad you're helping your mama? He says, to be honest, Dad, I wasn't really helpful. I was pretty grumpy and mad, annoyed. And my knee was hurting after practice, and I had shin splints. Just wasn't my day. So I say, I say, I'm sorry to hear that, boy. There's always grace and the ability to make things right. See, I'm trying to speak the truth in love, right, with grace. So I text my wife and I say, hey, Sam told you that uh, he wasn't helpful in the supermarket today. And Donna says, yep, he was a butt. <laughs> <laughs> and I confronted him about it. And he still hasn't apologized. I bet he has by now. I'll find out. But I, I just wanted to read those to you because this is just a really big public process like I'm trying to do with my boy, trying to do with my six-year-old wife. I do love, it's really easy for me to love you guys. But because I love you, I want to tell you the truth. 
So please don't sit there and miss the whole point of this week, which is about the importance of truth, not whether you like it, whether you would prefer it that way if you happen to be God, whether you like whatever. I, I know how these things go. It's so interesting to be teaching on truth and know the consumerism that creeps in when you go to a camp and you talk to your parents and you talk to each other, hey, you like the speaker? How's the worship team? You know, how, how's everything going? And, and, and we can get like consumers. And I'm not saying it's bad to have opinions, but there's a difference between opinions and truth. Start asking, Lord, would you help me to see if things are true according to your word? And if you don't believe in the word, then say, is this dude getting the Bible right? Because that's what he's trying to do, right? And so, so let's, let's all go into this seeking to learn. I want to learn. You know, you know this guy Balaam in the Bible? He was a prophet that was disobeying God. You know who spoke truth into his life? Anybody know? A donkey. I want to hear truth from a donkey if that's where it's coming from, right? <laughs> really, I, I, I can't. You know what? I heard a great definition of maturity one time. Maturity is, is someone who's easily edified. Somebody who's easy, it's not hard for them to grow. They'll, they'll take some meager samplings that are given to them and they'll get some nutrition out of it, you know? They're not these consumers who are always evaluating based on their likes and dislikes, ready to go do a Yelp review. But they're saying, what's true? What's going to change my life? And I hope you realize that, that I, we are doing what we're doing this week so that you will find the truth that's in Jesus. I must tell you, the cheer y'all let out when Mia read that passage, that blessed my heart. Like, I just, enthusiasm for the word of God like that from young people who live in a culture who think it's cool to be apathetic and checked out and not be overly invested in anything. Oh, God could change the world with a group like this. And I love you guys, and I want you to hear my Father's heart, even when I'm rebuking, even when I'm correcting, even when I'm exhorting. I remember I had this old school women's basketball coach at Biola, and, and Ken, I knew him well, I just love him. We would work on recruiting together, and I remember I was walking through the gym one time, and obviously practice hadn't gone well. <laughs> and, and Coach Crawford, I hear him bellow to the ladies, I am not here to make you happy. I'm here to make you better, right? And I thought, man, who talks to people that way anymore? You know, in, in a world where everybody wants to be liked, and, and I thought, who talks like that anymore? I'm here to make you better. And this, this old man knew what was better. He knew what would make him better, and he wanted him to buy into what he knew would make him better basketball players and better women. And, and so please hear the preaching of the word as the word of God preached through, through yes, fail, frail people. And don't like the band because they're cool. Don't like the band because they're, they're, they're uh, impressive. Like the band because they're giving you truth, and they are. They are. They're giving you truth with hearts engaged. The people running wreck love you, and they want the fun and the team and the camaraderie stuff to be leading you to an experience of knowing God as the way, the truth, and the life. That's who he is. And so we're going to continue to look at who Jesus is tonight. And I'm going to challenge you tonight. I'm going to read a lot of scripture. 
And you know what happens? We read scripture and we tend to check out and wait for the funny story, right? Or the practical application that I can immediately apply to my life. But, you know, first and foremost, before you get on with the cash value of something, you need to go to God's word seeking to know who God is to enjoy him, to delight in him. Imagine if I took Donna out on a date and we had a great time just talking and enjoying each other and affirming each other and getting to know each other better. And then I said, all right, what's the practical workout of this thing? What is it? What's cash value? What does this mean? No, it's got to start with deeper adoration of God. It's like you don't go to a museum, look at an awesome painting by da Vinci and then say, all right, what's, how do I work this out? What's the practical outcome of this? First, you got to stand in awe. I mean, the practical outcome, maybe you take painting lessons and try to do something remotely like that. But the first thing is you, you think and you enjoy and you delight, you taste and see that the Lord is good. And whether it applies to you, you and your girlfriend today is really not the thing you would need to be thinking about first and foremost. It's God himself. Isn't that how you want to be treated? Isn't that how you want to be enjoyed and delighted in and loved as a person? Not for your practical value? And, and so let's go to God seeking to know who Jesus is because that's the point of the whole thing. We've got to know Christ. So please open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to continue. There's so much going on in this book. The Gospel of John is an awesome book. I, you could preach in this book for the rest of our lives. And Pilate's question is, is what we're talking about. Pilate says to Jesus when, when that he, he says he's the truth. He says, and what is truth? And it's this cynical, hopeless, negative assumption. There's no real answer to that question. And that is the way people are thinking more and more in our day. And you won't find life if you don't find truth. And so how do you find truth? What do you think it is? That's what we're trying to define. What are your greatest needs? Let me ask you that. Um, let me not get personal. It makes it a little tougher for you to jump in. But what do you think people in our society deep down really want most? What do they want? Money. money. Okay, money. And you know, it's, act it's actually not money. It's what money seems to provide, you know, security, influence, comfort, security, popularity, happiness, value, success, status. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, good. That's beautiful. Wow, you've got some ideas, people. You've got some ideas. But listen, listen, all the things we want, I think... You could trace them back to God-given instincts that actually will only be met. Whatever it is, security, significance, uh, love, most of all, right? All these things that we seek after to be known, to be loved, to be appreciated, to be valued, to feel important. All these things God tells us will only be found in God himself. And all the other avenues we tend to find those things in are empty if you don't trace those things back to the ultimate source of God himself. And so we want to answer Pilate's question, what is truth? And we realize that it's ultimately found in Jesus himself. That's who he is. Social acceptance, popularity, academic success, athletic success, entertainment, 
the ideal body or your dream career or finishing college or accomplishments. God says over and over again, the greatest need you have is for himself. We can so easily miss that. And he gives himself to you joyfully and in Christ according to the scriptures. And so we are seeking a faith that seeks understanding, faith in the person of Jesus, which leads to dependence on him and obedience to him as a true disciple of Jesus. You know, I met, I met someone today, and, and this dear person told me, a student here, she said, I'm not actually a Christian yet, but I'm really trying to learn everything I can. You know, I came here, and, and, and she had a notebook full of notes. She's as engaged as she can be, and she's honest, and she's humble enough to say it in front of other people. I mean, it wasn't just me. And, and she just said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not there yet, but I'm asking questions, and I'm seeking answers. How can you ask more than that? Is that beautiful? Is that a beautiful attitude? Yes. And, and, and that, that's, God honors that. God loves that. That's, that's a heart that isn't hard. That's a heart that's willing to say, I'm not in charge of the world. I'm not in charge of everything. I, I want to learn. I, I want to understand, and I'm going to seek that. And God loves that. And I know God rewards that sort of attitude where we take ourselves off the throne and we let God be there and leave the possibility that we could be wrong about things. And so we go to the scriptures to find out if we're right. As people, we're always going to Jesus. So we see over and over again in the Gospel of John, Jesus teaching who he is, teaching what the kingdom is, teaching what kingdom people are like and how it, what it means to be part of his kingdom. And he's constantly getting people flocking to him, and he's constantly getting people hating him, opposing him, and conspiring to kill him, both at the same time. And you got to ask why, just like the spoken word did. Why? Why would they want to kill him in this way? Well, we need to realize that Jesus came saying very difficult things that challenged the status quo. Jesus realized that you tell people the truth, and a lot of times people don't like the truth. Now, let me go back. Go put that back one, Kayla, if you would. Thank you. Um, Okay, so let, let's think about who Jesus is. You know, people had all kinds of expectations, all sorts of agendas, all sorts of ideals for how he should be, and they came with their agenda for Jesus over and over again. And, and people who were open-hearted and humble and seeking to learn, like, like this woman was today that I talked to, this young lady, he, he loves that, and he meets them right where they are. But when people come imposing their agenda on him, he never becomes a man-pleaser. He never becomes a people-pleaser or, or somebody just looking for votes. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. In other words, if all of humanity took a vote and 100% of humanity voted this way and God voted in the opposite way, guess who wins? God. That's right. But we tend to think we know what's going on, but we don't. The Bible says we need our senses of discernment trained by the practice of the word to discern good from evil. Because we don't boot up knowing it. And so people are coming with all these military expectations for Jesus and political expectations for Jesus. And they want him to overthrow Rome. And you know what? Jesus was constantly giving people life and giving them joy and giving them hope and giving them healing. And he all the while also was disappointing people left and right. 
So one, one dude, a rich young ruler, comes to him, and, and Jesus just keeps challenges him and pushing him. And it says, and the guy walked away sad from Jesus. That was how he walked away from Jesus. Because Jesus shot straight with him, and he didn't like what Jesus was saying. I think the like button on Facebook and whatever the equivalent of that is in other social media has created a perspective that's highly destructive, as if, I like that actually has any objective meaning. Actually, as if it translates in anything that's true. And often we do it just to be liked back. Right? And you wonder why somebody you like didn't like it. And before you know it, the likes are messing our heads up. And the pursuit of them is messing our heads up. Jesus disappointed a lot of people. And he actually, over and over again, ran away from the wrong kind of popularity. He did. He wouldn't have it. And, and so we've got to ask ourselves, who, who are we seeking? Are we seeking an image of ourselves in Jesus? That's what our tendency is. I think it was Voltaire who said, God made man in his own image, and man's been returning the favor ever since. Get it? Wait for it. Yeah. We keep making God in our image. We keep remaking God, thinking about him as we would like him to be, which looks a whole lot like ourselves. And so Kevin DeYoung wrote this, a pastor in North Carolina. He said, the greatness of God is most clearly displayed in his son. And the glory of the gospel is only made evident in his son. That's why Jesus' question to his disciples is so important. That question, who do people say that I am? The question is doubly crucial in our day because not every Jesus is the real Jesus. Oh, and almost no one is as popular in this country as Jesus. You know, you don't usually hear people say, I hate Jesus. Right? They want to be cool with him. It's like there's an old Doobie Brothers song, Jesus is just all right with me. It was a remake of it, I think, that you might know. Everybody hear that song? Yeah. All right, yeah, yeah. Well, that's how we want to, yeah, Jesus is all right with me. Right? But, but listen to this. Everybody wants to be cool with Jesus. Jesus. No one would dare say a bad word about him. But how many people know the real Jesus? Well, there's the Republican Jesus, who's against tax increases and activist judges, for family values and owning firearms. I think you're missing the point. I think you're missing the point. Let me keep going. He'll offend every one of you in a second. Wait. He's saying don't do this to him, right? Um, there's Democrat Jesus who's against Wall Street and Walmart. For a Stop. You're missing the point. <laughs> Just stop and listen. You're missing the point, you doofuses. All right, here we go. <laughs> There's Democrat Jesus who's against Wall Street and Walmart for reducing our carbon footprint and for printing money. There's therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life pro life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. <laughs> There's... <laughs> There's open-minded Jesus who loves everybody all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you are. There's touchdown Jesus who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christian athletes and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's, stop, stop, stop. You're proving him right. You're proving him right. He's saying, don't do this to Jesus. Don't impose your agendas on you. I know some of it's playful, but you're missing the point. Here we go. Listen. Listen. 
There's martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so we can feel sorry for him. There's gentle Jesus who's meek and mild with high cheekbones, flowing hair, and walks around barefoot wearing a sash and looking very German. <laughs> There's hippie Jesus. You're going to cheer? Any Germans? Any Germans going to cheer for that? Stop! You're missing the point. Um, there's hippie Jesus who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagine a world without religion, and helps us remember all you need is love. There's yuppie Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. There's spirituality Jesus who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine, and would rather have people out in nature, finding the good within and listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There's platitude, Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons. He inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts us up so we can walk on mountains. There's revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and blame things on the system. There's guru Jesus, a wise inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. There's boyfriend Jesus who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. There's... Stop! A bunch of guys are applauding for that. Yay, boyfriend Jesus! Yeah. Stop. Stop. Listen. Listen. I'm going to stop reading if you don't stop. Listen. There's good example, Jesus, who shows you how to help people, change the planet, become a better you. And then there's Jesus Christ. Okay. Now you can cheer the whole time. Because watch, he just shifted. He shifted from all these social agendas, all these personal preferences, and he shifts now and he goes solid biblical. Listen. Then there's Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. Not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one we'd been waiting for. The son of David and Abraham's chosen seed. The one to deliver us from captivity. The goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh. The one to establish God's reign and rule. The one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor. The lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. This... Jesus is the creator come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent, prefigured to Noah in the flood, promised to Abraham, prophesied through Balaam before the Moabites, the one with the donkey, the Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died, the Christ promised to David when he was king, the Christ revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant, the Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. This this Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and God. He's the Father, Son, Savior of the world, and substitute for our sins, more loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. Yeah. I'm telling you, we, we have got to be so careful about being consumers of Jesus. And I'm not saying, and he's not saying, that some of those things why we read, you could align pretty well with a Christian worldview. That you could even find some biblical base for it. But some of those things are not what Jesus came to teach and do. But what we need to be so careful about is, is to do what he just did. He goes to the Bible. Everything he said in that final description of Jesus isn't some imposed social agenda, personal preference that's straight from Scripture, from God himself, when Jesus talks about himself. He has got to be our source. That's what it means to get truth and submit to truth and apply truth. It means to go to God. 
and not where Adam and Eve went in the garden Sarah talked about Sunday night. And when they said, we'll determine good and evil for ourselves, we'll be in charge. Nobody's going to be the boss of me. I'm in charge. I'm calling the shots. No, this is going to God. And so let's, go, let's look at some passages. that We're going to read a whole bunch of verses. And I'm going to challenge you to really stay locked in. I know it's easier to stay locked in with a story or something like that. But stay locked into Jesus as he helps us understand who he is from his word. Help us, Lord, please. Here we go. Chapter 4 of John, verse 1. Listen to this. Jesus is awesome. And anybody who thinks the Bible's boring must not have ever read it. Listen to this. John 4.1, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although uh, he left Judea and departed for Galilee and had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was, so he's tired, he's walking, and he sits down. From his journey, he was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman's from Samaria. What you need to realize is Jews and Samaritans hated each other for generations. They hated each other's guts. They worshipped in a different place. They had horrible views of each other. And so Jews would do anything to avoid even contact with the Samaritans and vice versa. And so they would go all the way around Samaria on a journey and add miles and miles to it. And Jesus walks right into it. And no doubt his disciples are saying, what are you doing? And he goes to this woman, check this out. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. So he's in Samaria. He meets a woman from Samaria, which you don't do. A man and a woman at a well, and, and with a Jew and a Samaritan. What is going on? Or Jesus is blowing up all these social conventions. And Jesus says, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me a Samarit uh, from, uh, of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you water. And, and what happens next is Jesus interacts with this woman. And he's pulling her away from her perception that her relationship with God depends on her identity as a Samaritan, the location of her worship in Samaria, where the Samaritans worshiped. And then, look what happens. They interact, and, and Jesus says, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. See, he's going spiritual, she's staying physical. And the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank it for himself and he did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring and water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband to come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right in saying you have no husband, for you have five husbands, and one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus acknowledges her very sinful life, her, her really messed up life. 
He says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ when he comes, and he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He brings the message of his Messiahship, his representation of God, bringing the kingdom of God to this world, to this Samaritan woman. And the disciples can't figure this out. Just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman and no one said, who do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left the water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Jesus comes to this woman and he teaches her that her religion won't get her to God. Her, her, her cultural identity won't get her to God. And her sin won't keep her from God. If she finds forgiveness in Christ, if she finds relationship through the living water that he provides. See, Jesus is constantly wanting them to understand who he is. Chapter 5, verse 1, listen. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. Bethesda Hospital in Maryland is named after this place where people found healing which had five roof colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for, listen to this, 38 years. Paralyzed, unable to walk. 38 years. It's hard to have disabilities in our society. Back then, it was a death sentence. It was, it was a horrible life. And for 38 years, he had lived this. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he'd already been there a long time. So he heard Jesus' compassion. He said, do you want to be healed? <laughs> the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. And water, when the water stirred up, apparently there was this idea that when the, when the wind blew and the water rippled, there was, there was this idea that you could find healing if he got in the water while it was rippling. And he's never been able to do it because he can't get to it in time. And he thinks that's the answer. And Jesus says to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. You know, actually, Eddie, who's sitting back there, my good friend, one time he said to me, the Bible should be like smelling salts. Anybody have smelling salts ever? Where, you know, this thing, they'll crack under your nose to basically bring you out of unconsciousness. This, this combination of chemicals is so potent that it actually brings you back to consciousness very often. I've had it many times. But if, I have. Um, not for fun. Because I played ice hockey and football for a long time, so I've needed a lot. I've had a lot of concussions. I'm preaching as much as I can before my brain goes. Um, so, so you come to a passage like this, and Ed said, you know, it should be like the smelling salts of the word. We read that, and it should be like, whoa, right? And this, 38 years, 38 years, and Jesus says, get up, take up your bed, and go. And it says, so he got up, took up his bed, and went, what? 
what is going on here? Watch this. Now that day was the Sabbath. Oh, no, we know trouble's coming. See, the religious people like to use rules like the Sabbath to kill the work of God sometimes. And watch what happens. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath. Can you imagine? It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Can you imagine missing the entire point of the Sabbath? The Sabbath is finding rest in God. And this man just found the healing and the rest he needed. And everybody must have known that this guy had just been healed. And the religious people come along and say, hey, stop that. God save us from ever being that kind of religious people. And he comes and he, they say it's the Sabbath. And I love his answer. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. I'm listening to him now. That's the guy I'm taking directions from. And they say, who is this man? Who, who is this man who said, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not who it was, know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. That's really important because there are stories that highlight the faith of people in their healing. Here's an example. He didn't know who Jesus was. And Jesus healed him. This is just a decision Jesus makes to heal him in his sovereignty to make a point about himself, Jesus. And, and so they say, who, who is this? And he says, I don't know. Who healed you? For it was Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus, verse 14, was in the crowd. They found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well. Sin no more. See, he, he deals with sin in the life of the Samaritan woman. He doesn't shrug his shoulders and say he doesn't care. He deals with it in this man's life too. But the point is always himself. He says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews, check it out, were rejoicing and worshiping and giving praise. No, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath because Jesus answered them, my father's working until now I am working. They didn't like the way he was doing it. They didn't like his agenda. They wanted him to conform to their agenda and he wasn't having it. And so Jesus says, you know what? The father's working on the Sabbath, so that means I'm working on the Sabbath because we got the same work. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath from their perspective, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. That's exactly what he's doing. And if you don't believe he's equal with God, you should stone him. They were actually responding in the right way based on what they thought, based on Jewish law. But they needed to come to realize that this carpenter actually is God in flesh. He is the creator. He is the authority to whom they need to submit. One more passage. It's awesome. Go to chapter 6. Listen. Listen to what Jesus does here. It's incredible. See, he's not looking for popular, uh, popularity or, or opinion polls that, to, to like him. He's fleeing the, the, uh, the wrong kind of popularity, and he's seeking the kind of dependence on him, the recognition that he is God in flesh, and he has, is the authority in our lives. Chapter 6. Listen to what Jesus says, beginning of verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs. See, he just fed 5,000 people miraculously. He just walked on water. And Jesus is saying, if you're coming to follow me because of these impressive displays, if you're just coming for earthly bread, if you're just coming for impressive miracles, you're missing the point. You need to come to me. 
And so that's what he says. Truly I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate and you fill of your loaves, so you got your bellies fed. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then he, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. Listen, listen everybody, this is the work of God. That you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so he's teaching them that he is the one they need. He's teaching them that it's not physical bread that he's using as a miracle to point to a spiritual reality that they need. They need him who's the bread from heaven. That's who he is. He doesn't say, look, don't focus on the feeding of the 5,000. Don't focus on the walking on water. Those are signs to point you to me, to depend on me. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. And the great news we're hearing tonight is that Jesus is the all-satisfying bread of heaven who gives life to the world when he dies in, his, in our place and gives himself to us as the bread of heaven. Jesus didn't come to give us just earthly, physical bread, but to be bread. He didn't come to wait on us like some butler, meeting our needs and satisfying our earthly, physical needs primarily. He came to give life to our souls. Oh, he cares about our physical lives. He created it, and he gives us our daily bread, but he cares most about our eternal lives in our spiritual lives. And please don't settle for just the bread of earth, the things the world provides. Please go to God as the one who alone can provide what we need. Look at this incredible way he deals with his disciples now, so wisely speaking the truth in love. He said some really hard things. Like, look what he says in 52. The Jews disputed amongst themselves. How can this man... Give us his flesh to eat. See, they're missing the point. So Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you can have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He's saying these really hard things. And check out his disciples, the people who knew him best. Verse 60. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said, do you take offense at this? <laughs> See, he keeps, he keeps going right at their agenda and says, I don't play by your rules. You don't come to me on your terms. Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. 
And then, and then we're told people leave him. Look at verse 66. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And what's Jesus' response? It's so instructive. He does not say, wait, where are you going? I'm going to have poor self-esteem if you leave. He doesn't say, no, no, I'll, I'll switch what I'm doing and who I am for you. Look what he does. He turns to his disciples and he says, do you want to go away as well? I think what he's saying is, is you know what, now that a lot of people are leaving me who have been following me because they don't like what I'm saying, you know, if you've been thinking of leaving, this is probably the best time to go. If you don't like what I'm saying, if you don't like my teaching, you might want to leave now and listen to good old Peter's response. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Is that beautiful? You know what I hear in Peter's answer? I don't understand a lot of this, and I don't like a lot of it, and there is something in me that wants to go, but Jesus, I'm betting a ranch on you. Jesus, I've come to realize that you're the one who has truth, and so whether I like that truth, whether I'm understanding that truth very well right now, whether, whether it's the truth I would do if I were God, that's not really the issue, Jesus. There's nowhere else we can go because we've decided you're the one who has the truth. You're the one who has eternal life, so why would we ever go anywhere else? And see, that's the kind of non-agenda-setting faith we've got to have. I love Peter's honesty. He was an honest man. And, and he just said, look, where else am I going to go? I, I kind of want to leave, actually, I hear in that. But I know I can't because you are the one who has the truth. And that's where we need to get to. We need to get to the end of ourselves before we ever get to the feet of Jesus, where we find life and salvation and forgiveness, which is what we desperately need. When God tells you you're not in charge, that's a loving, life-saving thing to tell you. When you don't decide your destiny for yourself, oh, you have a choice. You could walk away like the other ones. Or you could say with Peter, you know, I don't understand a lot. And, and I, I don't like, actually, honestly, a lot of what it means to follow this man called Jesus, but I've become convinced that he's the one I can trust and only trust. And that's what I want to call you to. There's so much that we're talking about when it comes to truth that I want us to understand the ideas of, but it all boils down to a man. It all boils down to a person named Jesus Christ who came to love and live his life for us and lay down his life for us and give us forgiveness from our sin and give us abundant and eternal life. He's the one who, in whom it's found. I've been looking my whole life for other possible options, and I haven't found one that comes close to what Jesus provides. He's never failed me. You know, there's a, a really great book by George MacDonald called The Curate's Awakening. It's a story about this pastor who's taking care of this little church in Scotland. And he's going through the motions. He's a big fake. And the village atheist comes up to him one, says, one day and says, Hey, Winkfold, Thomas Winkfold is his pastor's name. He said, he said, do you really believe one word of all that stuff you preach? And Winkfold can't honestly say yes. It's like a dagger in his heart because the village atheist actually, actually knows he's reading sermons that aren't his. And Wingfold can't honestly look this atheist in the eye and say, yeah, I believe it all. 
And he goes into a tailspin, and he goes before his congregation in this story, and he tells them what happened the next week. And he says, last week, I, I realized, I don't know if I actually believe all this stuff I've been saying. He's been preaching his uncle's sermons that were willed to him, who weren't even his uncles. They were a famous evangelist. And he says, I don't know if I believe all this, so I have a, a, a promise, a request and a promise. My, my request is, will you give me four months to figure out if I believe this stuff? And my promise is, I'll never preach anything from here if I don't, I don't truly believe again. You know what he does? He goes to the village outcast, a guy named Polworth, who's a hunchback, asthmatic dwarf. God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And he gets help from the most godly man in the village who's the village outcast because he really knows God. And you know what? Polworth keeps telling this guy. He says, Wingfold, have you considered the man? In other words, have you thought about Jesus? And Wingfold says, yes, I have. And he says, go home and read the Gospels. Reacquaint yourself with the man Jesus. And he said, I have. And I find nothing in him that isn't lovely. I find nothing in him that isn't good. I, don't, I find nothing in him that isn't trustworthy. And he says, good. And he says, but I don't know if I believe. And then he says, well, let me ask you this then. Have you ever done anything just because he told you to? And he said, well, yes, all the time. And he says, then I think you may be real. Because Jesus said, if you love me, he'll obey me. And so we need to consider the man. That's what I want us to do in the midst of all the issues of our day that are so confusing and so confused. What brings clarity is Jesus himself. Seek the face of Christ because in his face is where we find the glory of God. Consider the man. Keep pressing into who Jesus is and you will never find him a failure. Help us, Lord, to know who Jesus is more each day, every one of us. Or that's the goal of our lives. We realize that, as John told us in chapter 1, that no one has ever seen God, but God who's at the Father's side has made him known. And Lord, thank you that Jesus not only is the eternal God who was with God and was God, who is the Word made flesh also for us because we needed him to be one of us and win the day for us by obeying in our place and dying in our place. Lord, help us to know Christ in the power of the Spirit, according to the Scriptures. To your glory we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.